incredible to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Hello and welcome to the Show Two Pros podcast. In the previous episode, we introduced you to Shochu. That was the Shochu 101 introduction to the drinks that we love. In this episode, we're going to talk about Awamori, which is Shochu's older cousin from Okinawa. We'll cover the fascinating history of this distinct spirit, how it's made today, and of course, how to make the most out of a glass of Awamori. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, from Fukuoka, down in southwestern Japan, is my co-host and constant partner in crime, Stephen Lyman. Stephen, how are you doing? Very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm really excited to talk about Awamori today. This is a really, really unknown drink and just fantastic from my perspective. This is good. I'm kind of bubbling over here on my end as well. Um, just to give you a little bit more background about the two of us, we're both certified shochu and awamori professionals. We're published authors, and we love tofuyo as a drinking snack, and especially with awamori. And I, maybe we'll have a chance to get to that a bit later. We've been exploring these amazing spirits, these indigenous Japanese spirits, for more than a decade, and. I can't even really tell you how excited we are to share them with you through this podcast. Please make sure to subscribe to the Japan Distilled Podcast on your podcast app or platform of choice, whatever that happens to be. And don't forget that you can also head over to japandistilled.com to listen to and or download every episode that we produce. So, yeah, Awamori. Steven, what are you thinking? Awamori, this is such a special drink, only made in Okinawa, which only recently became part of Japan officially. And before that, it was an independent country, which we'll get into that history and everything. But my first time visiting Kyushu was also the first time I had a chance to visit Okinawa. Okinawa is just, it's the tropics, essentially. It's a whole bunch of islands, you know, really warm weather tropical temperatures. And you can imagine alcohol production is very different in that kind of environment compared to a more temperate climate. If you think about Caribbean rum is made in this kind of hot human environment, and then you've got Highland Scotch, you know, made up in the Highlands of Scotland, very, very different climates, and you end up with very, very different drinks. So really excited to talk about Awamori today. Yeah, so awamori, it's it's a four-syllable word, A-W-A-M-O-R-I, A-W-A-M-O-R-I, awamori. I just want to give you a little bit of background on this drink before we dip into some more historical notes. It's the indigenous distilled spirit from Okinawa Prefecture. And currently, there are, it depends on the distilling season, but there are 47 active distilleries on that group of islands, way, way, way down to the southwest, as far west and as far south as you can go in Japan. There's 160 islands in that island group, and I think close to 50 of them are inhabited. There are nine islands within the group that are making awamori. Awamori is 
classified, it is regulated under the same tax scriptures as shochu, which we've talked about previously on this podcast. That means that these drinks, the spirits made by these 47 distilleries, are very carefully quality controlled. They're limited in terms of what they can use to produce the drinks. They are limited in terms of, of course, where you can make the drinks. And it's essentially Japan's oldest spirit. That's right. And I think to give you some context, and we talked about this a little bit on the previous episode, but Ryukyu, which is the old name of Okinawa when it was an independent country, Ryukyu was a key trading hub for all of Asia. And it was especially important because China and Japan did not have official trading relations for centuries because the Japanese would not acknowledge the Chinese emperor as the emperor because Japan had their own emperor. And so the Ryukyu kingdom ended up becoming very wealthy as a result of this trading relationship because they provided the trading post essentially in the, I guess it's the South China Sea. Is that right? Or is it East China Sea? I think it's the South China Sea. I think it is as well. But basically, it's an island cluster situated between China, Japan, Korea to the north, and then you have all the Southeast Asian countries to the southwest. And the Ryukyu traders would go all over Asia, and they were notorious for scouring markets all throughout Asia to buy up liquor to bring back to Okinawa. They would buy everything they could find. The Portuguese traders wrote about this. The Dutch traders wrote about this. Like We know that the Okinawa and the Ryukyu traders were these voracious drinkers, and they would bring that alcohol back to Okinawa or to Ryukyu to share with the royal family and other people who could afford it. As a result, naturally, distillation technology ended up being imported as well, as we talked about quite a bit on the last episode in how distillation technology came to Japan. It actually came to Okinawa earlier because because the Ryukyu traders were such uh, prominent traders in the region. Now, we know that Awamori was being made before what I'm about to talk about next happened. There is evidence of, actually written evidence of shochu, which is what the Japanese were calling the spirits that were coming from Okinawa. So shochu, as a reminder, it actually means burned liquor because of distillation. You used to use fire. Now you're using some sort of heating mechanism to evaporate the alcohol in the fermentation, and then you reconstitute that into a liquid. So shochu simply means burned alcohol or burned liquor. And that term was used as early as 1515 to describe spirits that were sent from Okinawa or from Ryukyu to the Satsuma domain in Kyushu as a tribute to the Satsuma domain lord. Now, that predates the first written mention of shochu made in Japan, which was that graffiti in the shrine in 1559. So about 40 years earlier, we have written record of shochu describing the distilled alcohol coming from Ryukyu to Satsuma, to, uh, to Japan. That was the first evidence that we had that distilled alcohol was being made in Okinawa. Not for this reason, but the Satsuma domain actually got permission from the shogun to invade 
Ryukyu to, to tr- essentially turn Ryukyu into a vassal state. And Satsuma was the domain at the southern end of Kyushu. So it was the most removed domain from uh, Edo, from what is modern-day Tokyo, in all of Japan, because Hokkaido was not part of Japan at that time. And so distance-wise, Satsuma was actually the furthest away from Tokyo, but because they invaded and actually conquered Ryukyu, almost without firing a shot, they then received tribute from the Ryukyu king, who was allowed to keep his throne. And that revenue from that tribute actually made them one of the most wealthy and powerful domains in all of Japan, despite their distance from Tokyo. That was in 1609, right? So then we had hundreds of years under Satsuma rule, but the the samurai didn't, the Satsuma clan actually didn't, they didn't regulate the region because who wants to take care of 160 islands over thousands of square kilometers of ocean? Let the Okinawan king take care of that. And, and the king was quite popular in his family, his lineage, they were, they were quite popular. But what they believed was that distilled alcohols were too refined and too powerful, too potent for the peasants. So Awamori was only available to the royal family and people who worked with them. And then it was actually doled out almost as currency. To give you a sense of how much a currency it was, in Shuri Castle, which is where the Ryukyu king lived, he had something that was called Zenikura, and that was his coin warehouse. That was the literal meaning of the of the room. It was the coin warehouse, but they actually stored awamori, not money. <laughs> so it was absolutely a currency in Okinawa uh, at that time. This continued until, I guess it was, I want to say it was the late 18th century, early 19th century when Ryukyu officially became part of Japan, when Okinawa became part of Japan. Those laws started to change, but not really until the big disruption actually is uh, World War II. Because of the regulation that Awamori could only be sold and consumed by the king and his immediate advisors and and his his family the all of the awamori distilleries had to be with inside of the castle walls shuri castle and so there's a this sanka district outside of shuri castle is where all of these distilleries were and in world war ii in the battle of okinawa the japanese military used shuri castle as their headquarters and the u.s naval gunships bombarded Shuri Castle and just decimated the entire area, destroying all of the distilleries, destroying all of the old Awamori stock that had been stored, uh, and really just decimating the Awamori industry as it was known for hundreds of years between probably the 14 or 1500s until, what, 1944, 1945. So that's that's a quite a bit of history there about... Uh, Ryukyu and Okinawa, but I th- hopefully that sets the stage for why these drinks are so interesting. And fast forward a f- several decades, and we've gotten to a place where there aren't nearly as many Awamori distilleries as there probably could have been if it hadn't been for the war. But we've got these roughly four dozen places scattered across the islands. 
that are making a very culture and historically connected drink. There's a terroir there. There's a connection to the past that is absolutely part and parcel with the entire story of Awamori. And it's all the way down to the production methods. It's it's also enshrined in the rules governing how you're allowed to make it. Let me describe that first really quickly. Awamori is a rice spirit that can only be made from rice. There's no flexibility here. In the last episode, we talked about shochu and how it has so much diversity. Awamori is only made from rice. Another thing that is common to all awamori that you will ever try is that they are made with black koji. We talked about koji very briefly at the end. This is going to be the subject of several more episodes. We're going to say koji all the time. K-O-J-I, koji. This black koji is what enables fermentation from a grain. Fermentation from grapes or fruit is dead easy because there's sugar inside of those those delicious fruit. However, rice, barley, whatever other grain it is, with the exception, I suppose, of corn, there isn't any glucose that's just waiting to be fermented. So you need the koji to convert the starches into that sugar. Historically speaking, black koji was the name of the game, and that has been enshrined in tax law. One last foible of awamori production is that there's a single batch fermentation, essentially. The shochu industry usually uses two batches, occasionally three, um, or three steps. Maybe batch is not the correct word, but it's there's a primary fermentation and then a secondary fermentation. In the awamori world, that's not the case. It's a single fermentation, all koji rice, and what you have is what you get. Then it's distilled in a pot still. Uh, it's a single distillation, just like with shochu. And then there's a whole lovely aging system uh, or aging methodology that has been developed over generations. This particular style has been recognized internationally by the WTO. That's right, there's a GI. There's an AOC, to borrow a term from the wine world, for Ryukyu Awamori. Ryukyu Awamori is the awamori made in the islands of Okinawa Prefecture, made according to these exacting traditional standards that have been, that are now controlled by tax regulations. As Stephen was saying before, it really has been around for a long time. This is not a trend. This is not some new drink. This is not something fancy that is being put in, I don't know, what 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 are the new receptacles? They're like cans and things with, you know, fancy <laughs> labels and stuff. This is old school traditional Japan right here. And even before that, as Stephen explained, before it was Japan, it was old school traditional Okinawa. That's right. The aging style lent itself to the storage of these spirits, which is how they became commodities. And the longer they were aged, the more valuable they became. There are written records of, of traders, European traders coming to Okinawa and trying very old awamori that was just apparently just lush and rich and deep. And I can only imagine what they taste like. I think the oldest awamori I've tried personally is probably between 25 and 30 years old. 
And it is unlike anything else I've ever tried. So I can only imagine what a 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 or 200 year old Awamori would have tasted like. Unfortunately, as I mentioned before, all of those old stocks were destroyed in the shelling of Shuri Castle. And the other thing that was actually destroyed or believed to be destroyed was the Black Koji itself. And so in the wake of the war, it took several years when they were rebuilding Naha, the area around the castle. They thought that Black Koji was extinct, that it was gone. And they finally, in digging out of the rubble, they found some straw mats with Black Koji growing on them. And that is now, I guess, the progenitor of all Black Koji that's used in Awamori production today. It all comes from that single straw mat where they revived this mold in order to continue Awamori production. Now, early on, the occupying American uh, military was not interested in allowing the locals to start making alcohol again. But finally, uh, they relented. And I believe it was in 1947 that the occupying forces solicited applications for new Awamori distilleries. And they received hundreds of applications. And they finally chose, I believe, less than 100 of these applications and allowed gave them distilling licenses and allowed them to begin making Awamori again. And only a handful of those could actually trace their lineage back to pre-war. If you can imagine, or at least I can imagine, that perhaps some of those families were simply killed off in the Battle of Okinawa because they wouldn't leave their distilleries. They didn't want to lose their family businesses. That's conjecture on my part. I don't have any evidence of that. But I can imagine that happening, and the, the the civilian fatalities in the Battle of Okinawa were very, very high. So it would not be surprising at all to me if entire families were wiped out during that conflict, which is obviously very unfortunate and tragic. But the industry did revive through these new distilleries that opened up, and they began using this black koji mold, and they they codified the regulations around what Christopher described, and now they've begun they've revived also the old aging method, which was touched on briefly before. And that's actually, it's like a Solaris system. It's, it's uh, in Japanese, it's called Shitsugi, but it's a fractional blending process, which you drink or you, you take alcohol out of your oldest storage vessels. So the oldest liquid you have is what you drink from or what you serve to your customers or what you bottle. And then you refill that vessel from the second oldest aging vessel and then refill that one from the third oldest and back down the line until you've got your new your newest awamori and so that blending that fractional blending means you've always got some of the oldest liquid in that oldest storage vessel as long as you don't don't empty it completely and that's the shitsugi or solera method which is also used in in sherry and i believe in some other alcohol styles as well now in japan or in okinawa I guess it's true in J- traditional Japan as well. That storage was most often in ceramic pots. You would actually have a pot by the front door of the distillery, which would be the one that you're serving customers out of. People would bring in their own ceramics. This is back before the convenience of glass bottles and plastic jugs and all that sort of thing. People would come from home with their with their ceramic pot. They would fill that pot and then they would replenish their own stocks uh, using that method. And Christopher, you lived in Spain. So do you have any further insight into that Solera system that's used in Sherry and how this compares to the Okinawan uh, Shitsugi method? 
you know, in terms of just what I've seen of both the Solera method, I was impressed. It tends to be spread out across several rooms, sometimes a, a particular vintage or a year's worth of sherry will be in one room in barrels. And then the next level of the Solera um, will be in a totally different part of the warehouse. And that was a bit different from the, at least in my limited exposure to the Shitsugi method down south in Japan, where they will often have the, the jars more close together in terms of proximity. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're just talking the major differences is the difference between wood versus clay. There's almost no way to compare the two, really. I mean, when you see a, a few different levels of the Solera, the barrel stacked up maybe three high in terms of three different classes almost of Solera, it's just totally different because you never see jars stacked like that. So it's a very different environment in that sense. Having said that, I mean, there are some similarities in terms of the duration or how many different levels of the blending there is. You might see like 10 different years or sometimes you see a little bit more. And I've never seen something that has more levels than I am old, years old anyway. So uh, I guess that's another commonality. Okay. And in Okinawa and Awamori, there were, there were records of Awamori up to 250 years old. And obviously that's all gone. And so anything that would have been made post-war, if any of it still remained, the oldest it could possibly be is about 70 years old, if any had been saved. And the other aspect to consider is that the, those ceramic pots were made by essentially ancient artisans, ancient, ancient craftsmen. The ability to make pots that size has largely been lost. Even in the shochu industry, when they have to replace their ceramic pots, a lot of those are now sourced from China, where they're made in factories. And so the old traditional handmade, these are very, very large, like 600 to 1,000 liter earthenware pots. The ability to make those by hand just doesn't exist anymore in Japan. So replacing these pots is, is essentially impossible at this point. Right. And ceramics is such a huge part of the fermentation industry here in Japan, or it always was anyway. And it still lives on in the shochu and awamori industry to a certain extent. One place that that's best embodied, I'd say, is at Chuko Distillery down in just right outside of Naha City on the main island of Okinawa, where this Awamori distillery actually has kilns adjacent to the distillery itself. So they're both making the Awamori there, and they're also creating the pots that it's going to rest in for years and years and years. And it's a phenomenal place to visit if you can ever get to that part of Okinawa, which is not that far from the main airport in Naha. It's fantastic to be able to watch the artisans throwing these large pots and you know see them firing up the kiln. And you're able to walk home with one of these you know, or take the bus or a taxi home, I suppose, after you've also sampled a bunch of the product on the in the tasting room. It's really a very cool, a very local style where they actually allow the flames from the kiln to kind of braise or scar the outside of the pots almost, I guess. It creates this scorching kind of pattern on the outside, which is really, really cool. It's a 
fantastic way to take in a lot, a lot of the history of these traditions, you know, by visiting Chuco. Yeah, they're beautiful pots for sure. And, and it took them quite a while to both find the right mix of the local clays in order to get something that was stable and they, they could form it into these jars and then reviving that scorching method, essentially. So they're just they're really unique uh, ceramic vessels and very convenient if you can make it to Okinawa to get to Chuko Distillery. They have a nice tasting room. You can choose your own jars. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool experience for sure. Switching gears a little bit, Christopher mentioned at the top that single distillation is part of Awomori. And that's true everywhere except Yonaguni. And Yonaguni is an island. It's actually, I believe, the furthest island from the Japanese mainland in Okinawa. In fact, it's closer to Taiwan than it is to the next closest inhabited Okinawan island. So they really are their own people. I mean, Okinawans don't really like to consider themselves Japanese. Still, it's a little bit like Hawaiians don't really consider themselves Americans to any great degree. And Okinawans have this independence still about, you know, who they are as people relative to uh, their Japanese nationality. And the people of Yonaguni may be the most extreme example of that. Their local hanazake, so that's flower sake, it would be the literal translation, is 60% alcohol. It is, I believe, the highest percentage alcohol available in Japan. It's amazing amazingly smooth, despite the very, very high proof. It's also like probably the closest thing you get to just class A moonshine in Okinawa. But it's not easy to find outside of Okinawa. It's um, I had it for the first time at an izakaya in Naha. And me and my dining companions could not finish a single uh, vessel. Uh, it's called a katakata. You'd think that three people having dinner would be able to finish one serving of of the alcohol served to them, but we actually couldn't. We gave it to the table next to us when we left. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I didn't mention before, but I really do need to throw in here is that awamori is typically 30% alcohol. So that's 60 proof. You can find some some brands that are 25% alcohol. You can, of course, find some that are above 40 but 30% seems to be the sweet spot. This hanazake that Stephen was just talking about, the 60%, that's fully twice the standard in the Okinawan islands. It's a thing to behold. <laughs> and if you have a chance to enjoy it, go for it. In general, people are enjoying the, the standard 30% alcohol awamori, either in on the rocks or perhaps in a mizuari mix. Mizuari, and I think we talked about this before, is mizu is, is water, wari means cut. So it's a water mixed awamori drink. It's on the rocks typically, maybe 50-50 or a little bit heavier on the water. And it's very refreshing, very easy to move on to the next drink, highly sessionable if I may be so bold as to use that adjective, which always gets spell-checked when I use it in writing. And it's 
just a really nice, smooth drink that people consume with food, typically. If you go to an izakaya, you'll probably have a chance to order your drink in what Stephen talked about before, in a karakara. And that is a small, almost like a kettle-shaped, like a teapot, sort of small teapot type of thing made out of clay that they fill with awamori. And then they give you two, three, four, however many chibugwa, which are these little cups for sipping small amounts of awamori with your companions. And you pour for each other, and it's, it's a lovely thing. The karakara are great because they tend to have, they usually have, they often have a little um, earthenware marble in them. When there's awamori still in the little kettle, in the little pot, you can not hear that thing when it rolls around, really. But when it's empty, it starts to roll around and make noise. So everybody knows when it's time for a new pot. And you can, rather than shouting out to the servers, you can just kind of rattle the thing and it makes this very distinct sound and they'll know that you need a refill. That is a very, very cool aspect of the drinking culture there. It's also a way for people to make sure that you're not stiffing them on a drink when you're pouring um, because they'll be able to hear that little marble rolling around and know that they didn't get what they, what they bargained for. That's right. If I could interrupt there. Yeah. Uh, sure. They, the origin of the karakara actually was back when awamori was a commodity. The royal family members or the merchants who happened to get awamori in some sort of trade would show off to their guests that they had this drink to share, right? Because most people were drinking fermented alcohols, not things nearly as refined as, as aged awamori. And so what they would do is they'd bring that out and they'd be pouring a little bit of it and doling it out to, to their guests. And, you know, if they were stingy, they'd fake pour, right? And so somebody was like, ah, let's make the karakara so that you can't cheat the drunk people, that they're not getting any more awamori when, when, uh, when you've run out of what's in that, in that current service vessel. It was by necessity because people would try to cheat each other and not, not give people full pours. <laughs> Because they didn't want to get rid of their really, really valuable hooch. And it was valuable. That's absolutely that's absolutely certain. Considering how, you know, you could only use it or you could only make it if you were within a, you know, an arm's length of the castle wall, it seemed. And uh, it was really not really available to anybody outside of the royal classes. So, yeah, it, it absolutely was a true gift to be able to enjoy that drink back way, way, way back in the day. Uh, in terms of maybe one more drinking style I can talk about here just to round out the way to enjoy these drinks. And this is going to sound a little bit strange to a lot of people around the world, but, you know, drinking shochu and awamori with hot water is a very, very common way to enjoy these drinks, at least down where the drinks are made. And that is referred to as oyuari. Oyuari is spelled O-Y-U-W-A-R-Y. The same wadi is in there again. So mixed. In this case, oyu is at the front. Oyu means hot water, hot water mix. And hot water, heat, as you can probably imagine, helps to bring out a lot of the aromas and some of the earthier, less, I mean, definitely sweet, but also some of the more robust aromas are able to kind of jump out of the glass. And it's a very, 
enjoyable experience. And once you kind of catch the Oyuwari bug, there is absolutely no turning back. Spoken like somebody who's had some Oyuwari in their past, it sounds like. I may may have had one (laughs) or two, yeah. The one thing you do need to be careful about, though, is if you really want to drink Awamori in the traditional style, you have the, it would be fine in a katakata, you know, with the chibugua, you know, the small earthenware cups that are used. And that's probably what people were drinking from back when Oyuwadi was introduced by the Satsuma samurai after that invasion back in 1609. But the more common way of drinking today is actually in what's called ryukyu glass. And it's this beautiful hand-blown glass that's done in these really vibrant colors. Remember, Okinawa is a tropical or subtropical area. And so people actually tend to dress there much like people dress in Hawaii. Bright colors, floral prints, that sort of thing. And their glassware reflects that as well. You'll find, you know, really vibrant purples and lavenders and blues and oranges and reds in this glass. And it's really beautiful. But where you have to be careful is it's not it's non-tempered glass. So I brought back two gorgeous, gorgeous Ryukyu glass uh, vessels from my first trip in Okinawa. And one night I decided to make some Oyuwadi Awamori. And now I have one of those glasses <laughs> oh, no. uh, remaining. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, buyer beware. Do not make Oyuwadi in your Ryukyu glass. You need to use tempered glass or ceramic if you're going to do that. So this has been a great overview. I think one thing that we maybe didn't make too strong a point of it, awamori is always made from rice, but actually most awamori is made from Thai rice. It's actually rice imported from Thailand. Uh, And that reflects the long trading history between, at the time, Siam and Ryukyu. What's interesting about that, and Christopher was trying to talk about sort of the really interesting aromas that open up drinking oyuwari, awamori, is Thai rice has different protein and fat content than Japanese rice. And so you end up getting a much more unctuous drink. And I think that's why it lends itself so well to aging, actually. That's my suspicion. I've had long-aged Japanese rice shochu and long-aged awamori. They're both delicious. Don't get me wrong. But the awamori just becomes this splendid like it's got caramel. It's got just these these deep flavors. It's just like a bottomless pit of of deliciousness. And I think that is largely due to the to the use of the ingredients plus the black koji and then the ceramic aging. Um, but I guess shifting gears, Christopher, you know, I think you've probably spent more time in Okinawa than I have, having lived in Japan quite a bit longer. Do you have some like of your favorite stories like things that you just wish everyone could experience if they're interested in in Awamori or visiting Okinawa? Yeah, you know, I I was there, I guess it was last year for an event. And then I was able to visit a cave, a cave system where they're aging Awamori. And then they're also, it's incredibly cold down there. And they it's the perfect condition for aging these bottles and clay pots of Awamori. And you can actually buy your own bottle or pot to put down there and leave for decades if you want and then come back and grab it later. And in the same cave, they're also aging tofuyo, which is that food that I said both of us really, really like as a drinking snack. And tofuyo is essentially 
for lack of a, I think this is accurate. It's a fermented tofu that is so rich and so deep. It's kind of like the chocolate mousse of Japanese drinking snacks, except it's not sweet. It's just small spoon, big flavor. I mean, you don't even need a spoon. You need a toothpick. You just kind of scrape off a little bit from the from that cube of tofuyo and and put it in your mouth and it is it just blossoms. It is so unbelievably deep and that particular food paired with a lot of really good aged awomori is an absolute marriage from heaven. No question. Tofuyo actually I almost describe it as cheese, tofu cheese. It has that really deep, rich, almost cheesy flavor, almost on, on the spectrum of blue cheese, right? It gets to that level of deep, rich funk. And it really goes so well with awamori. It's actually made with red koji, which I believe is only used in food production. I've never, never heard of red koji used in alcohol production. Which make, So I guess it makes sense that if there's koji involved, you've got a mold, just as cheese is made with mold that there would be a similarity with cheese. But yeah, tofuyo is a, is a wonderful drinking snack. But you have to be careful. I mean, I've, I've <laughs> made the mistake of ordering tofuyo with people who didn't know what it was, and they just took their chopsticks and took a big, <laughs> big bite of it. And the look on their face <laughs> was one of shock. And the look on my face was probably one of delight. <laughs> because, And then I'd point to the little, the little uh, toothpick holder next to the tofuyo and say, that's what you're supposed to eat it with. <laughs> Because you'll order one tiny little cube, probably not much larger than, than what, like a Reese's cup or something? Like a small one, like the Reese's cup minis. That should last your table the entire evening. Because you're just taking the tip of your toothpick and just taking a little bit at a time as you, as you eat it. So yeah, Tofio is, is certainly special. Um, but speaking of the aging caves, I remember the first time I went to Okinawa, which I mentioned earlier, I went... Actually, I transferred through Naha and I went to Miyakojima. And Miyakojima is one of these outlying islands, a handful of distilleries. There's like one hotel. and But within 30 minutes of landing at the airport, I was in one of the aging caves. And it was just an amazing experience. You had um, all of these bottles with children's pictures on them, which as an American <laughs> is weird. But what, <laughs> what Okinawan families will do is they will buy a bottle when their child is born. And because it aged awamori is so valuable, they will age the bottle or the ceramic pot with their child's photograph on it in the aging cave of the distillery until the child turns 20. And then they can share it with their child because 20 is the age in which you're allowed to drink in Japan. And the other thing, like a nursery, not a nursery, a, a kindergarten school, kindergarten class visited the distillery and they all got their pictures taken in their little school uniforms and their pic pictures put on the bottles. And now those bottles are waiting for those kindergartners until they grow up. Like this is just, Awamori is so ingrained into Okinawan culture that nobody thinks twice about giving booze to five-year-olds. Amazing. Right? And uh, as a baseball fan, you'll certainly appreciate that, uh, appreciate this. In that same aging cave, there was a there was a table off in a corner, and I was like, "What? What's what's special about those pots on this, that table?" 
And they said, oh, that's the Oryx buffaloes come down and train here every spring, and that's their stash. So every spring, when the team arrives for spring training, all those pots get carried to the hotel and delivered to the players' hotel rooms. And the players drink what they like. If they need a refill, they call the distillery. And the distillery comes and refills the pot. And then those pots go back into the aging cave after the season and refilled in that Shitsugi method. And in fact, families will keep their pots. Families on Miyakojima will keep their pots in the aging cave. And then if you're having a house party, you call up the distillery. They bring the pot to your house. You drink what you like, you return it, and then they'll refill it for you. Like, it's just such a different mindset. It's just fascinating. It's just heaven. Yeah. Can you imagine if the local distillery would deliver your, like, drop the barrel off for your for your barbecue? Like, <laughs> it's, it's a little a little nuts. And the other thing that I just, it was that that visit to Miyakojima was just so memorable for me. And the, the last thing I remember was driving down a dirt road and then turning off onto another dirt road and then ending up in the middle of this cane field, sugar cane field. And there's this corrugated iron, basically, garage. And that was Ikema Distillery. Oh. Like, dirt floors. The Toji was in his 70s. The Master Brewer Distillery was in his 70s. And he has one arm. And I believe he's still making Awamori. The last I heard, which was earlier this year, he was still the Toji. He was still making it in his late 70s which is pretty remarkable. So that's uh, a brief introduction to Aomori for you, something that Stephen and I care very passionately about, as you can plainly tell. And it's also something that isn't really well known outside of Japan, something that is very hard to get your hands on. Hopefully that will change soon. If you would like to learn more about Aomori, then please consider buying Stephen's book, the Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, which has a very in-depth, both in terms of history and production and enjoyment, chapter on Awamori. It's available on Amazon, of course, as well as through your favorite local bookseller. And if it's not, then please ask for it. Also, please tune in every week to our Shochu Pros Show Tuesday Instagram Live which is on my Instagram feed. And you can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Stephen, how about you? First, I'd like to say that if you are interested in Awamori and would like additional information, we do have some more information on our website, kanpai.us. That's K-A-N-P-A-I dot U-S. You can also find me at Shochu underscore Danji. That's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I on Twitter or Instagram. And if you have any questions about Awamori or Shochu, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. We're always more than happy to talk about these fascinating drinks. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. If so, please take a moment to rate and review us whenever and wherever possible. And we'll be back in your feed very soon with another episode filled with Japanese distillation purity. So this has been Christopher Bellagrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering 
by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well, especially if you're interested in the wonderful, weird, quirky, and arcane history and culture of Japanese ghost tales. From both of us here in Japan, thank you so much for spending time with us. And as always, a very heartfelt kanpai. <laughs>